Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. The book of Psalms is composed of sacred songs or poems that are meant to be sung. In the original Hebrew text, the book as a whole was not named, although the titles of many of the Psalms contain the word mizmor, meaning a poem sung to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. The Greek translation of this term is psalmos. In the Psalm 139, it's about how God has perfect knowledge of us, all our thoughts and actions. God knew us in our mother's womb and is always with us. Hear these words from a section of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings in the morning and settle in the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day. For darkness is as light to you. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. sing together. Teach us your ways. Teach us your ways as we learn from one another. Learn to love each other. Teach us your ways. Teach us to give. Teach us to give, teach us to give, give ourselves for one another, learn to help each other, teach us to We continue today in our Life After God series as we explore some of the issues that, uh, and the questions that have over time been more difficult for a growing number of people to accept or to believe. And the question today that we're going to look at is, where is God? It's an important question, where is God? If you made a list of all the God questions that humans are prone to ask, I'm pretty sure where is God would be right near the top, probably second to the question, is there a God? And if you concede that there is a God, then you might make a second list to come up with all those answers that humans have come up with about where God is. And if you did that, you would find that our human beliefs are all over the map. Or you might say that God is all over the map. Um, Up there, down here. Out there, in here, over there, elsewhere, anywhere, nowhere, somewhere. There's an answer for where God is and anybody can give it to you. Have you ever searched for God yourself to find where God is? 
I mean, where would you go looking for God if you were in pursuit of God? Would you turn inward and, and explore the interior landscape of your soul, the spiritual landscape of God? Did, it, did that search maybe send you outward to the world to find God out there somewhere? Um, some people I know will search for God by going to the Holy Land to find God among the ancient sites there or to walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain, or to visit some of the ancient cathedrals of Europe or England, or even the Buddhist temples of Kathmandu, or the silent monasteries in Greece. Some people will search for God by coming to church, either for the very first time, or maybe returning to church after a really long time of being away. But there are a growing number of people today whose search for God has actually led them away from church. In fact, as far away as they can get. Maybe because the God they met when they came to church was nothing like the loving, generous, accepting God that they had hoped to find and the God they heard about. In their search for God, what they found instead of a relationship is religion. And a lot of us churchy people don't know the difference between religion and a relationship. Uh, religion is a guy in church who's thinking about fishing. <laughs> a relationship is a guy out fishing who's thinking about God. We should do more fishing in church. There's a whole world of people out fishing and thinking about God. Are you one of them? I read something that Jane Fonda had recently written about her conversion to Christianity. It shocked me. She had been an atheist all her life, and, and then she found herself in her early 60s. She was at the end of her marriage to Ted Turner, and she realized how all along she had been trying as hard as she could to be perfect so that she could be loved. And she never felt whole. She described herself as being, quote, disembodied. But then something happened. She started to feel herself becoming whole. And she didn't describe it in very Jesus-y or churchy ways, which is why I liked it. Her beautiful and compelling story, I think this story about how she came to faith would resonate with a lot of people today. She said, I came to faith because, quote, I felt a presence, a reverence humming within me. A presence, a reverence humming within me. Have you ever had one of those experiences in which you found yourself deeply aware of something beautiful, something powerful, something beyond what you can know and what you can observe? Have you ever sensed that there's a presence, a reverence uh, humming? behind the veil of reality, something you can't quite measure, verify, something that doesn't feel altogether reasonable even, but is real. The great writer Frederick Buechner wrote years ago about visiting SeaWorld uh, in Orlando with his family. This was probably 30 years ago. This, by the way, was long before we ever began to question whether it was humane to to capture whales and, 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 and hold them in tanks to perform for us. 
But Beekner, his wife, and his then 20-year-old daughter were watching this killer whale show where five or six whales were performing. And uh, Beekner said that the delight of the crowd appeared matched only by what seemed to be the delight of the whales. And he said something extraordinary happened. He said, quote, It was as if the whole of creation, men, women, beasts, sun, water, earth, sky, maybe even God, were all caught up in a dance of unimaginable beauty. A dance of unimaginable beauty. And suddenly, Beekner realized to his surprise that his eyes were filling with tears. And after the show, he mentioned this experience to his daughter and his wife, who said the same thing happened to them. Caught up in a dance of unimaginable beauty, for a growing number of people today, there's an openness and possibility that maybe this humming, this dance of unimagined beauty is, is God. They don't necessarily know how to quantify it or describe it or validate it or verify it or prove it because it doesn't correspond to the standards of human reason. It doesn't conform to the well-established doctrines of the church, but that doesn't mean it's not real. You ask the question, is God up there? Is God down here on earth? Uh, You could say, yes, God is both. And in saying God is in both places, you would be right, perhaps, if being right is your thing. The question is, do you feel the hum? Do you have an experience of God? Look, if you experience God, then you don't need anything to tell you that you're right or certain. But if you don't, then there is absolutely no amount of certainty or being right that can Satisfy that deep longing for the hum. And the ancient Hebrews had a word for that hum. They called it ruach. It's a big, heavy, thick word. In fact, just saying the word itself, it it engages the breath and the lungs, ruach, because it means breath. It means spirit. And for the Hebrews, it wasn't breath or spirit. It was both. God's breath was God's spirit. The first mention of Ruach in the Bible is found in the very first chapter, the second verse of the first book of our Bible, where it says, The earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Ruach, the spirit of God, was hovering over the surface of the waters. God breath, God's spirit, Sweeping over the primordial soupy chaos, suffusing all things with life, infusing all things with God's very essence. The Genesis account of creation says that everything has come to be because this explosive, expansive, creative energy that hums and pulses through every living thing. And we know that the Hebrews knew this intuitively, which is why when you read your Bibles in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, read it, you will never once find anybody saying, is there a God? You will never once find anybody saying, "Uh, where is God? 
Because the ancient Hebrews knew that as long as they were living and breathing, they knew there was a God. And they knew where to find that God. What you'll find in Scripture is Hebrew people asking the question not, is there a God or where is God? But look, God's, God's here and God's over here. God is in everything, everything. A people, whales, sparrows, stars, fruit flies, dandelions. All of life shares this single common energy force, which they called God. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the Hebrews had a name for this God. They had many names for God, but the one that stuck was Yahweh. Four consonants, Yod, He, Vav, He. These four consonants, when you string them together, they represent not only God's name, but God's very essence. The question is why Yod, He, Vav, He? Because they were breathing sounds. The ancient rabbis said that we know God this way by the sound of breathing. The sound of ruach that pulses and hums through our lungs and through all creation. If you have ever struggled with this image, this popular image of a God who is this old, white-headed, bearded man on a, on a throne, sitting down, reaching over, and sometimes tinkering with the world, I want to introduce you to a God of the Bible, one that we've never met, who is as close to us as our breath. Ruach, breath. This word ruach, I looked it up, it comes up 378 times in Hebrew scripture alone. That's Old Testament alone. Its Greek equivalent in the New Testament is the word pneuma. It appears 403 times in the New Testament. Are you doing the math with me? That is 781 references to God in the Bible as spirit or breath. What an evocative image. But then somewhere along the way, a bunch of Christian men got around a table and said, you know, we got to market and brand this Yahweh thing. Um, and they threw a bunch of ideas out. Uh, breath, spirit, ah. warrior, king, daddy, father. Uh, they came up with a bunch of them. And they took a vote and they settled on Colonel Sanders. <laughs> that settled it. That's our God. Ruach, Numa, Breath, the creation story that you heard Reverend Lauren just read, says that God is everywhere in everything. Where can I go from your Ruach? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the furthest limits of the sea. <laughs> Even there, up, down, here, there, elsewhere, anywhere, everywhere. God's ruach, God's essence, presence, spirit, breath will find you, is with you, will be there before you even get there. In the Bible, there's a man named Job. Job went through life's ringer. He was up there, down there, everywhere. Life sold him down the river. 
But Job never once questioned God's existence. He questioned God's compassion, God's justice, God's reasons, but never once did he doubt that God was real. He knew. Which is why he says in Job chapter 27, God, quote, is the spirit in my nostrils. Jesus once spoke of how Ruach works. His uh, secret friend, Nicodemus, comes in the middle of the night, looking for God, actually trying to pin God down, trying to be certain about things. And Jesus said, it doesn't work that way. The Ruach, Numa, spirit, he says, it blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. Ruach, breath. The Apostle Paul once was in Athens. He stumbled across a bunch of Greeks who were praying to these idols. I loved it. Uh, one of those idols, they didn't know the name, uh, who it should be dedicated to, so it said, uh, 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 to an unknown god. <laughs> they were hedging their bets. <laughs> CYA, as we would say, right? <laughs> and Paul said, look, you're, the god you're searching for, you, you can't fashion that god into an idol. The only God worthy of worship, he says, is the one who, quote, gives to all mortals life and breath. It's everywhere, this breath. What do you think? We did a poll this week, uh, asked you about where you think we could find God, and a couple of really important responses here. We asked you, I I believe God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. 84% of you said God's everywhere. We asked, uh, I I believe God is is present in me in some way. Uh, Strongly agree or somewhat agree, 98% of you. That's pretty presumptuous. (laughs) Especially the next question, I believe God was fully present in Jesus. That was 96%. Eh, I don't know about that one. We got some work to do on that one, but uh, when we understand that God, like the Hebrews, like Jesus, like the early Christians, we we understand that God is breath and spirit. We can make two very life-changing and world-impacting discoveries. The first is we discover that God is actually in us. God exhales, creation comes to life. God's essence in that moment enters us and enters all living things. Not the whole of God's essence. That would imply that that you or your pet snake or your bonsai tree is God. We're not saying all of God is in one thing. When we say that God is in all things, we're not saying that all things are God. What we're saying is this ruach, this pneuma, It's an inseparable, intimate part of you. It is in you, around you, underneath you, above you, moving through you. Every breath you take, every breath you're about to take, every breath that's ever been taken, and every time and place is God's breath. Science proves this out, and I preached about this many years ago. It's a scientific theory called Caesar's breath. It's a classic teaching for high school chemistry and uh, 
college professors. It's, it's proven by a very complicated mathematical formula. What it demonstrates is actually just mind-blowing. The theory of Caesar's breath, it takes us back 2,066 years ago to the year 44 BC when Julius Caesar, the great conqueror, was stabbed by his good friend Brutus in the Senate. I mean, you thought the Senate was bad in 2022. <laughs> Brutus was next level. Um, mortally wounded, Caesar slumped over. He took his last breath and died. And his dying breath has become this classic teaching tool. And what that suggests is this, that when Caesar took his last breath in 44 B.C., he exhaled this enormous amount of breath molecules, mostly nitrogen and carbon dioxide. How many? Um, it's, it looks like, do we have this one? Uh, 10 to the 23rd. That's a lot of zeros. Uh, a lot of zeros. A lot of molecules. And scientists speculate about what would happen to all those molecules. Some would go into living things, some plants, some water, but most of them would just be released into the atmosphere. If you take a deep breath right now, at least one of those molecules entering your lungs came from Caesar's last breath. And not only Caesar's breath, but every breath that has ever been taken by every living thing that has ever exhaled. Even God's breath at creation. Earth's atmosphere, it doesn't release anything. If it does, we are in serious trouble. Not a single atom or molecule will ever slip through the atmosphere. And that means that every creature from the first day of creation shares the same breath. We breathe Adam and Eve's breath. We breathe the fetid breath of the brontosaurus. <laughs> the pungent breath of the of the blue whale, St. Augustine's breath, Martin Luther's, John Wesley's, Mother Teresa, Joan of Arc, Beethoven, Michelangelo, Genghis Khan, the breath of our best friend and our worst enemy, our parents and grandparents, of our children and grandchildren, every breath, even God's. And the ancient Hebrews knew this, that Jesus knew this, the early Christians even knew this, and they didn't need a theory to prove it. When you breathe on the palm of your hand, uh, you can feel it. You can't see it, but you can feel it as it touches your skin. It's both tangible and intangible. You can sense it and feel it, but you can't grab it. You can't control it. And so it is with God. And if the essence of God is in all living things, shouldn't that influence then how we perceive ourselves? To look in the mirror and know, A, I am not God. I don't have to do anything to save the world completely. I just have to do my part because a part of God is in me. To look in the mirror and see divine beauty instead of all the things that your brain tells you about yourself. Unconditional love, complete acceptance. Do you see it in yourself, in the people sitting around you? If the essence of God is in all living things, shouldn't that influence how we relate to all living things and the earth and the environment. The earth is not God, but God's essence is in the soil. It's in the rivers, the oceans, the gray wolf, the western pronghorn, the cutthroat trout. 
Do you see it? The great poet Wendell Berry said, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. When we understand this, we make one other discovery. All living things are in God. It's more difficult for us to comprehend. Even me, I I struggle with it. But when God exhales God's ruach, it, it enters all living things. But remember, with every breath, there is both exhalation and inhalation. That is a breath. And when God breathes out, God breathes in. And when God breathes in, God breathes in all of us. God experiences us. God is influenced by our experiences. God is in all things and all things are taken into God. How does this work with God? All we have are human analogies, but let me try this with you. Make a list, in your mind at least, of all the people that have ever, ever influenced you in your life. Lori is on my list, my mom and dad, my sister, my kids, grandparents, extended family, uh, friends, John Wooden, the great basketball coach of UCLA, I admire him. I was a Dodger fan growing up, Vince Scully, the broadcaster, what a, what a sweet, sweet soul. He influenced me. Um, Fred Rogers, Kim Kardashian, <laughs> a handful of really difficult people, even they influenced me over the years, even my pets. Think of all those that have influenced you. If they made your list, it's because you experienced them. Uh, in some way, you are still experiencing them today. They are, as you would say, in your experience. I still remember car rides in the back seat of my, my dad's 1978 Thunderbird, Ford Thunderbird, uh, driving through Southern California with the windows rolled down, the eight track of Neil Diamond singing Sweet Caroline, all four, me, my sister, my parents singing, singing Sweet Caroline together. And it was glorious, literally. And the feeling of being so safe and so loved and so included in my family, the world. I remember that day, those days, they're part of my experience. If you were to call my mom right now, she's probably listening, she would say, I remember that. I I remember it differently. But I remember it. It's in my experience. And it's something like that with God. God experiences us. Our experience is in God. God feels. God loves. God hurts. God hears. God listens. God understands. And this experience is best captured in the words of the Apostle Paul, who says, quote, The Ruach, the Spirit, the Pneuma helps us in our weakness, breathing for us through sighs. Too deep for words. Breathing, sighing, taking us in, experiencing us. If that's true, does it not change how we relate to God? How we see God relating to the world in ways that are not human God relating to that cutthroat trout, the pronghorn, the gray wolf. God experiences all things. 
I'll close with this. Annie Dillard, the great Pulitzer Prize winning author, she wrote about this God who experiences the world. She was walking alone one day uh, on this hot country afternoon when she says the air above this empty field became thick and started to move. And the roosters, she said, the roosters across the road became restless and loud all of a sudden. And this heavy silence, she said, gathered and just struck her. And I'll quote this because it's so powerful. She said, it bashed me broadside. Ten acres of fallen, invisible sky choked the fields. The pastures on either side of the road turned green in surrealistic fashion. Monstrous, impeccable, as if they were holding their breaths. The roosters just stopped. All the things of the world, the field, the fencing, the road, the truck, were just stricken and self-conscious. And she says there was only silence. I could see the shape of the land, how it lay holding silence. Its poise, its stillness, unendurable. The silent fields, she said, were the real world. Eternity's outpost in time. William Blake, he said, eternity is in love with the creations of time. Why why would God ever want to be in all things if God never expected to experience all things? Takeaways for today, there is a God in the Bible many of us have never met. This God is as near to you as your breath, so breathe deeply and often. God is in all, and all is in God. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.